Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, I'm here with uh, Tom Evans. And Tom, you are completing a master's degree yep. with Lincoln Christian Seminary. Describe what your degree is. Uh, my degree is in uh, historical theology, so church history. Um, so I've been I've been pitting about for several years working on finishing that up. And how many years? Uh, let's see. I started in two thousand nine, and I'm now completing it in twenty twenty three. Yeah, that's about right. <laughs> <laughs> the nice thing is. I guess they don't think church history changes, so that my credits didn't go away. <laughs> and you were my student. Uh, what, what years? So I came to uh, Central in 2005. Oh, the year I came? Yeah, I think so. Oh, you must have had me green. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do remember, because I did not have you your first... Did you come in the fall? But I do remember having you for philosophy of religion uh i think i've told you the first day of class thinking i don't know what just happened because <laughs> you i believe you started out with well i think you're all familiar with the cartesian method and i remember thinking i don't know what this foreign language is that's <laughs> happening right now <laughs> yeah. you understand i was going through culture shock yeah in 20 years away or however years you lose track of where people are at yeah and i lost track completely yeah right <laughs> and so i think that we were doing the um the ontological argument yes yeah <laughs> if you remember i struggled with that that god is the greatest thought that can be thought yeah if you haven't thought the greatest thought that can be thought yeah yeah <laughs> yes yeah and I remember struggling with that because I thought there was more to it than that, and that I wasn't kidding. <laughs> no, so that's the that's the thing. There's not anything more to it. <laughs> yeah. But I will say, I I remember I called my mom after that class, and I said I had just the most interesting class I've had at Central, but I was excited about it because I didn't know I didn't understand anything. <laughs> It was happening, but it was the first time where I felt challenged and thought, I I want this. Whatever this is that I don't understand, I want to try to grasp it and understand it. Yeah, that may be unfortunate that philosophy was, do we call it philosophy of religion or? Yes, I think that's what it was called at that point. Yeah. Yeah. That one may have been tough. I don't know. Yeah, it was, it was tough for me. Got through it and then theology of mission, I remember having that, which was fantastic so did you you just had the two classes with me i think that's right but then we spent a lot of time together and oh we did salt okay okay and we read uh, we read crucified god maltman yes maltman didn't we give up halfway through (laughs) (laughs) and then we read theology of and embrace which was fantastic okay exclusion and embrace exclude yeah exclusion and embrace um uh, we read stricken by god is that Jerzak? Yeah, yeah. Right, Jerzak. Yeah, we read that. Oh, we did? Yes. 
Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I, I was teaching it. Our, yes. Well, actually, I wasn't. It was just... I think that was, besides theology of mission, just even that salt class, that was... I learned more in that than a lot of classes. Because it was just great discussion, great reading, and... We created our own salt system. And yes. It was always the same group. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's right. We did cheat. <laughs> we, we, we were kind of an exclusive group. Yeah. Yeah. I think we had the most profound uh, one-credit salt class that there was. Yeah, yeah. Was Ryan in there? Yes, Ryan, yeah. Scott, and Matt. I know Ryan and Scott were. Rosado. Yeah, yeah, that was a good group. That yeah. was kind of, I always tell the story that, I think it was from that experience that we got the idea of doing the honors program. Okay. But of course, what the honors program was, was more of, oh, we'll do, we had this exclusive salt group, now I'll just create my own, <laughs> uh, created a whole system back there, that yeah, literally in a different space in the school, so. Yeah, yeah, because I think the, the honors program came about after I left. We were putting it together, but okay. it may not have come together for a while. But you have then, you've put together a paper mm -hmm. that we were going to talk about. And I was highly impressed with your subject matter. <laughs> Can yeah. you explain what you're doing with it? Uh, so I'm, I'm comparing and contrasting Augustine's understanding of original sin, which I'll confess I'm not a scholar and so if someone's really into Augustine I'm sure I'm getting things wrong uh, I'm a lover not a scholar necessarily but comparing Augustine's understanding of original sin and how that has infected or affected depending on how you view it uh, the entire Western Church except for the Restoration Movement in some ways the Restoration Movement stands apart in that way with uh, the Eastern Orthodox understanding of ancestral sin, and then also your book, which I think dovetails really well into the ancestral sin understanding. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I, I want to say here that when you're saying Western and most every other, you're not making a hasty generalization. No. That uh, go through then. Yeah, so... I mean, Augustine, uh, of course, is his understanding of original sin becomes Roman Catholic doctrine. Now they change some of it, um, just like it, you know, for Augustine, you're born sinful. You know, he even has a, there's a quote in my paper um, that uh, I think it's from Confessions, where he talks about a, a day old infant is just as guilty. As anyone else which leads to Roman Catholic reasoning for you know infant baptism and then also um, limbo. limbo so Augustine's understanding of, of limbo um, and the Roman Catholic understanding of limbo which either Pope Francis or Pope Benedict did away with limbo but yeah so that Augustine understanding then gets picked up by I mean Luther continues with that understanding of original sin Calvin takes it, and in my opinion, Calvin makes it even worse um, than what Augustine had planned. And then John Wesley believed in original sin 
the only difference really that Wesley had, because I thought Wesley was different, but as I, I mean, he has a document on original sin that you can read. It's, I think it's a sermon. And as you read it, it's, I mean, it's a Calvinistic understanding of original sin, except that he believes there's a moment where you have a moment of grace where it's lifted. So your total depravity is sort of lifted, where you have the option to choose God or choose not to follow oh, God. Oh, okay. So, oh, okay. Kind so, of prevenient grace. Yes. Okay. Yes. So, uh, so Wesley believed in prevenient grace that you have that moment. But outside, if you take that away, it's Calvinistic understanding of original sin. Uh, so it, it really does affect the entire Western church, uh-huh. except for the Restoration Movement. Yeah, I mean, that's quite a claim, and I think that, that you're saying nobody. Yeah, nobody. Uh, now, there may, there may have been some fringe groups, yeah. but of the main players, nobody, okay. except for the Restoration Movement. That in and of itself, even if we've missed something here, right? we're talking about that there is this clear picture of of, uh, an original sin and and that then makes of sin a mystery right can you run that down for us in other words there's not really an explanation right yeah and uh i think you do that uh really well i have a quote if i can quote you oh i'm always that allowed people Uh (laughs) (laughs) so to quote the the great paul axton some theologians have made the origins of sin inexplicable. For example, early in his Christian life, Augustine encountered and absorbed the understanding that concerning the ancient sin, nothing is more obviously part of our preaching of Christianity, yet nothing is more impenetrable to the understanding. As Peter Brown explains, Augustine does not dispel the mystery with his doctrine of an original sin, but in place of explanation, offers historical origins. Total depravity is attributed to all the children of Adam in whom all sinned, um, you know, as he got from the, the, the Vulgate. But the exact nature of how sin is propagated or how all participate in Adam's original act is not entirely clear. This uncertainty as to how sin is propagated is evident also in Calvin's explanation of Augustine's doctrine in that he will attribute the propagation of sin to either divine order, ordinance, or natural inheritance. So, yeah, he doesn't explain the mystery, other than that the guilt of Adam is passed down to everyone. And I guess that uh, the most obvious explanation is sex is sin. Yeah, for Augustine, that's quite yeah. literally <laughs> his answer, yeah. that it, it comes from sex. Yeah, um, and that's the way we get here. Right, exactly. Yeah, uh, and so therefore you've you've heard things like uh, that. That's why Mary had to be a virgin, is that it comes down through the the male. And so that that has ramifications, that, and not necessarily with immediately with Augustine, but with okay, if sin is a mystery, mm-hmm. then the tendency is well, then what is salvation? Is it addressing this mysterious category in a mysterious way? Mm. Is that what you're, are you dealing with that too? Or? I'm not dealing with that in the paper, but can you run that down? Well, it, it's, I think that Augustine sets it up 
I've not done a deep study, but obviously there are, there are political, social, cultural shifts with the Constantinian, you know, rise of, of Constantine, the Constantinian shift. That if uh, in part of what Christus Victor uh, advocated is the idea that, that Christ is defeating sin, death, and the devil. Mm-hmm. And the devil is not a mysterious category because we, the devil is manifest in the principalities and power. So they would literally, I think, have in mind the Roman emperor. Yeah. There's the devil. Right. And manifest to us. And, of course, there's the devil that's killing us, that's persecuting us, that is the, you know, I think they could talk about the Roman emperor for a period yeah. as the embodiment of the Antichrist. And so Christus Victor contained this kind of politically disturbing notion that the powers are the Roman powers that are defeated, that are challenged, that are, are embody, you know, embody the Antichrist. And I suppose that, you know, once the emperor becomes a Christian, you know, well, the powers are Christian. The emperor is Christian. Right. So Christus Victor, I, I think, is not going to sit so well yeah. with the, the, the powers that be. And I think that that then sets the stage for a, a, a shift in atonement theory. Yeah. And sets the stage for the rise of divine satisfaction with Anselm of Canterbury. Of course, we're talking a long time here. Yeah. And it's not just, you know, that I think that there is some ambiguity about with Abelard, who's contemporary to Anselm, that there there is this shift in atonement theory that makes it, uh, with Anselm, focuses then on sin as a legal, abstract problem with the law, and the law exists, you know, the law is a reflection of God's moral attitude, and so there's been a transgression of... Infinite know, proportion. Yes. Yeah. That, that we've dishonored God. Yeah. And so it becomes, where Christus Victor is, you know, very concrete, that sin, death, and the devil is what Christ, what, first of all, what killed Christ, and what Christ defeats. That's pretty clear. Yeah. And, of course, I think there's some crudities that with uh, even Origen, I, well, I admire Origen. I right. think that he actually had a profound understanding. But Origen is going to use illustrations that are probably beneath, you know, that God in some way tricked the devil by putting Christ on the hook <laughs> like a bait on a fish hook, and the devil is the fish who bent the hook. Maybe for a popular audience, that was a, a nice explanation. But of course, what that does, it makes God seem deceptive. And sure. So there may, there may have been illustrations of Christus Victor that were unworthy of the doctrine. But that, that's not a condemnation of the doctrine, per se. Yeah. I need to add that to the paper. That's <laughs> yeah, and you even have a divide between east and west on what salvation means so you have like for augustine this is on you know the ancestral understanding of sin instead of original sin 
the East has an ancestral understanding of sin. Run, run that down for us. Well, it's so like from an Augustinian understanding, you have every person born comes into the world stained with the consequences of the sin of Adam and Eve and of their ancestors. So all of us have been stained with that uh, in some way. And, but those consequences are mortality, a tendency to sin, and alienation from God and other people. But it doesn't carry the guilt down. That's for uh, ancestral sin. So the consequence of ancestral sin, number one, are death, right? Tendency to sin and alienation from God uh, and other people. But original sin says you carry the guilt of Adam down. Ancestral sin says no, you carry the death, that death enters into the world. But it's not a, it's suggested by those in the Orthodox Church that the doctrine of ancestral sin naturally leads to a focus on human death and divine compassion as the inheritance from Adam, while the doctrine of original sin shifts the center of attention to human guilt and divine wrath. Mm -hmm. So, I think this is such a beautiful picture that the East has, that instead of, you know, the, what, what I learned was, God was mad at Adam and Eve for sinning, so he made them guilty, and then he uh, caused them to die and then sent them out of the garden as a punishment. The East says, no, God warned them, if you eat of the, the tree, you're going to die. It wasn't God punishing them with death. That was the consequence of, if you eat this, you're going to die. And then uh, the get, pushing them out of the garden is not, again, a punishment, but it's instead saying, well, if you eat of the tree of life now, you're taking death with you into eternity. So he tells them to leave the garden. So it's a, all of that ends up being an act of compassion, whereas in the West, like you've talked, uh, it's, a, it's a legal thing, where you've broken the law, now you have to be punished for it, and it's an infinite punishment that is not just for you, but for all of your descendants for all time, you take this guilt with you. And you suffer forever and ever. Yeah. In hell. Yeah. Even if you're as large as a little fingerling, I think is the language of Calvin. Right. Babies, infants, no longer than a finger. Which is abhorrent. Yes. Uh, to say yes. the least. Absolutely. <laughs> and it, that's not a picture of a compassionate, loving God. Yeah. And may, maybe a side note here as we're talking about the garden. I don't think it really matters. That however you view that, whether you view yeah. that as a real historical event, whether yeah. you view that as a significant theological explanation, that's the material that everybody's dealing with in one way or another. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, I think in the early church, they're, they're not necessarily, you know, this is Maximus. He's not holding to any kind of historical reading of that. Yeah. So, you know, whatever you're doing with that, the key thing here is that if it's a legal thing, the problem is it's an absolute break, God's angry, and there's an irresolvable thing. 
But in your explanation, I like to A ones. Yeah, so my daughter, uh, I was explaining this to her. Uh, she got it, and, and she said, well, it's kind of like if you, as my parent who loves me, had told me, hey, don't go out and eat just wild mushrooms because they can be poisonous and you could die. And if she were to go out and eat the wild mushroom, well, that punishment, if she was to get sick and die, you know, this is what she said. She said, well, that punishment wouldn't be from you because you warned me, don't do this. Because if you do, you'll die. And it, it would be her own choosing that caused the death, not my punishing her. And I thought, oh, that yeah, kind of explains it. And so that, you know, why, why do people die? Well, the, the explanation is, in the obvious, if you're taking it literally or even figuratively, that the tree of life is access to God. Where does life come from? It comes from God. If you're cut off from God, that... Well, then, then you're subject to mortality. It's not that people are innately immortal, but that we're always dependent upon God. Explain, then, the shift around the go back to the Romans 5 thing. Oh, yeah. So Augustine is reading uh, from the Latin Vulgate. Yeah, so uh, David Bentley Hart, in his New Testament translation... Um, has a footnote at Romans 5.12, which explains it really well. So he says, uh, I'm not going to butcher the Greek here, but he says it's a fairly easy verse to follow until one reaches the final four words of Romans 5.12, whose precise meaning is already obscure and whose uh, notoriously defective rendering in the Latin Vulgate constitutes one of the most consequential mistranslation in Christian history. So it says uh, it's not an adverbial uh, formula uh, with which the verse begins. And essentially what it's saying is that the Latin is saying that the guilt that in Adam all sinned. So that all of mankind is guilty of the sin of Adam. Like, we are all part of that. But the Greek translation is talking about the, the death comes first. That the, the consequence of the sin is death. And death spreads to all mankind. And therefore, all men sin. So it's, it's not the guilt of the sin that we're included in. It's the death that we're all included in. And one of the, I think, the great points of, of your book that lines up with ancestral sin is it's then the death part that leads us to sin because we're all trying to avoid death. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the East will explain that in avoiding death, that's what leads to sin. You know, we sin to avoid death. Um, and the East even talks about that, you know, in the, in the garden, again, whether it's a, Adam's a real person or not doesn't matter in this, but that in the garden, Adam is essentially making a name for himself. Mm -hmm. So he's going outside the relationship of obedience to God and wants to make a name for himself. Of course, the serpent says, you know, eat and you'll be like God. And so Adam decides that's what he wants to do. 
um, and tries to make a name for himself. And isn't that what we're all trying to do in avoiding death? We we want to not die. You won't die. Right. You'll be like God. Yeah. Knowing good and evil. That's right. Yeah. Um, so it's that death-denying. Yeah. I mean, that just sounds like me. But it's not me. Right. That's your, so can you describe an, what, exactly what is meant by ancestral sin? So an ancestral sin means that we are born into a culture that is in that sort of death denial situation. So sin has tainted the world. Um, death has come, but we're not guilty of Adam's sin. But we, it, it's a hard place to live because we've all fallen into sin. But our, the guilt part, we are all guilty for our, whatever we do. So it's, it's the sin that we commit, um, which is exactly what Alexander Campbell, Barton Stone, of the Restoration Movement, that's what they said. We're not guilty of Adam's sin. We're guilty of our own for following God or not following God. Yeah. And... In the East, is the word guilt what we're focused on? No. No, it's death is what we're focused on. Because Jesus comes to overcome death. Mm -hmm. And so in that overcoming of death, then we're also given the opportunity, of course, in, in the East, to be like God. Like that salvation is, it's not the salvation of, you know, in the West, being saved from eternal hell where you're going to be tortured forever and ever and ever. In the East, it's deification. Mm -hmm. That you get to be, you can be like God. So instead of being like Adam, you can be like Jesus. Mm -hmm. you know? um, and it's a, it's a completely different view of salvation. And I think, in a lot of ways, a more beautiful understanding. And it is... Accessible to explanation. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, we can. We this is not a great mystery that we're in that that we are enculturated into a particular understanding. Right. But uh, and even even uh, our orientation. You know, I don't. I I don't know how far this goes back or when this clicks in. But you can think of a child learning language, and of course this is where the psychoanalytic stuff, I don't know how far you got into the psychoanalytic right. stuff, but this is what Lacan and Freud are saying about a, a child's learning language, is that it is, uh, you enter into the symbolic system uh, in a kind of, you, you know, the Freudian term here, you cathect the father image, you know, which is the law, which is the symbolic order, which is language. Yeah. That is, this Oedipal phase occurs as the child is learning language and comes to identify themselves so that there is a kind of reification of language. Mm. Uh, do you do anything? With no. And, and that just seems to be the human predicament. I mean, at one level, this is just so pervasive it's almost hard to name it mm. because what that is what we would do. You know, I think the back tower Babel is once again 
a kind of reduplication, they would make their name great in and through this tower. Yeah. And of course, the thing that is the real, the tower really is inconsequential. The thing that is consequential is the language. Mm. That is, that there is a kind of essentializing of the language that we would imagine, and this is why on day one of philosophy of religion, I begin with the Cartesian cogito. Yeah. Not because I think that's a unique moment necessarily in history. I just think the Cartesian cogito is illustrative of the human predicament or what we do as humans. I think. Therefore, I am. Yeah. I use my thought gives me being. That almost sounds like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yeah. Know, you know, that in knowing you have being, you establish your own being, and this being is on the order of the divine. Yeah. I know you had mentioned that it sounded like you, but there was a quote. So this is from, uh, I believe his name is James D. Francisco, and he wrote about uh, original sin versus ancestral sin. So in describing ancestral sin, he said, Death is the natural result result of turning aside from God. Adam and Eve were overcome with the same temp temptation that afflicts all humanity. The desire to be independent and exercise self-will to realize the fullness of human existence without God. And yeah, isn't yeah, that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, that's it. That's yeah. it. And I think that in a, you know, Campbell's understanding is right. That, you know, it's not that everybody is equally depraved. Mm -hmm. I think that that's an original sin, that there is this kind of darkness, especially by the time you get to Calvin. You know, I suppose you could argue, is it, is it total depravity in Augustine? I don't think it's, it's not in the way that Calvin has it. Okay. Yeah. And certainly by the time we get to Calvin, well, everybody is, you know, evil. Right. I think that this is accessible. We can, that we're describing a phenomenon uh, we're describing a psychology. Uh, I think we're describing, I, this is my interest in philosophy, and I don't mean just to wipe out all philosophical understanding, but I think the impetus behind a philosophical understanding to, to establish being through knowing, you know, the Cartesian cogito, isn't that the whole point of a philosophical understanding? We imagine that in some way that we do philosophy, we obtain wisdom as a kind of uh, ultimate truth and meaning that we would establish our own foundation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's either that or it's, uh, you know, what you get by the time you get to uh, Friedrich Nietzsche's nihilism. Yeah. But Hegel is just an extreme example, I think, of uh, this kind of, I mean, rationalism. But, but of course, it's, uh, it's, by the time with Hegel, it's kind of an irrational, but it's foundationalism. Yeah. That you're going to establish your own foundations. But isn't that the human project, not just philosophically? What, what is there that humans, that humanity does that, you know, that that is the, the impetus behind culture that, and the mixture, the fusion of culture and religion, that is that we would reify the culture in such a way 
that we would make the culture self-ethic. Mm-hmm. We would establish ourselves. Yeah. This is certainly, you know, in Japan. I don't know that Shintoism, and if you ask somebody, you know, what is your religion, they'll say, well, I'm, you know, I'm not really religious. But they are religious in that they, but what they would really want to say is, but you know I'm Japanese. Right. Japanese-ness yeah. is an identity. Well, we're, we're having that in the, in the evangelical church in America, that there was just, uh, I was listening to um, Phil Vischer, uh, Phil Vischer, he created Veggie Tales. Oh, okay. Um, so he has a podcast called The Holy Post. And uh, so he has been talking a lot about the evangelical church, and a lot of people are going after him now because he is not MAGA. No. Um, and so they brought out on their show that uh, there's such a large number now who identify as Christians in the evangelical church who are, you know, sort of Trump-based voters. They have no connection to church whatsoever. Oh, oh. The Trumpism is the equivalent of Christianity. Yes. So they've created like their own sort of understanding of what being a Christian is, which has no real association with the church. <laughs> that need to. Yeah. And uh, but they identify as Christians. Um, the same thing's happening in um, in Europe. All the right wingers are in love with. Um, with uh, Victor Orban, same thing. So Hungary has traditionally been Christian. And there's a whole lot of people under Victor Orban that identify as Christian. Victor Orban identifies as Christian. Yet it, it has like 92% of people in Hungary don't go to church. Something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've created their own. And I, I guess, I don't know the Veggie Tail guy's point, but it would seem that you could almost make the opposite point. The evangelicals have so ingratiated themselves or identified themselves uh, with the right-wing Republican Party that it's not a huge leap between people who are not Christian making a religion of right-wing Trumpism and those who are claiming that is Christianity that are coming at it and so transforming the religion that it's no longer really identifiable as Christianity. Yeah, and that is Phil Vischer's point. The, the, yeah, it's a natural progression. Yeah. The, in fact, you could probably get rid of the unhandy part. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.